looking tonight to Psalm 119, your Bible. Psalm 119, verse 81. We are making our way through. If we make it to verse 88, we'll be halfway through, if you can believe that. Seems like it has been some time since we began Psalm 119, and it does seem like we'll be in it for some time. There's just a lot here about uh, the life of faith, and I hope as we continue in it tonight, we'll be encouraged. In spite of what seems to be... Uh, a dark time for the psalmist. I say a dark time. Spurgeon said, this octave is the midnight of this psalm. Very dark and black. And then he said, stars, however, shine out, and the last verse gives promise of the dawn. So let's read through this together and... Uh, observe what I would say is a saint still trusting God, though he is tested severely. Verse 81, David writes, my soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I don't know if that resonates with you in terms of your personal experience. There's definitely some things here expressed. You may have never expressed in prayer. You may have felt like this. But have you ever prayed like this? And that is one of the things that stuck out to me about this section of the psalm is that he is still praying. He's still praying. And I just encourage you, if you're going through a hard time, even an extremely difficult time, don't stop praying. God hears. What kind of things is he going through? Well, he has a languishing soul. He has failing eyes. He feels worthless or useless, tired, wondering how long his trial is going to be in comparison with his life. Persecuted, hunted, lied about, 
and nearly spent. Almost destroyed, he says in verse 87. And definitely in need of reviving. He needs strength. He needs energy. He needs help. But in all that, I say he's still praying. There's still a sign of life here. And that's of great encouragement to us. It helps us to see that sometimes saints, those who truly trust in the Lord, go through very difficult times. This man is a servant of the Lord. He's beloved by the Lord. He's chosen for service as the king of Israel. He's the man after God's own heart, but he's nearly finished. That's the way he feels. And there is encouragement here. It may be sort of a midnight feeling. There may be a lot of darkness, but I do believe there are, Spurgeon said, some stars for us to look at. Look at verse 81. He's weak, but still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. He says, my soul languishes for your salvation, God's deliverance, but I wait, and that word can also be translated hope, certainly the idea, I hope for your word. This word that is translated languishes means to suffer or decline to lose vitality and to grow weak. And this is his inner man. He says, my soul it could stand for his whole person. And he does make reference to his eyes in the next verse. But I think we're talking about his inner person. He feels as though he is being finished, spent. You look at the word in scripture and there are times where this is used of water that is spent or used out of a skin of water like Hagar and Ishmael had. Deuteronomy 32, verse 23, talks about firing arrows that are held in that quiver, but when all the arrows are gone, there's nothing left. It's spent. But this is his inner man. All of his internal energy, strength, is gone. But he hasn't lost hope. He's still looking to God in that circumstance. He's looking to God's deliverance. I believe the word salvation, while it could refer to, as we talked a little bit earlier in our testimony to our, before that, even of what salvation is in terms of spiritual salvation, but it also could be just a simple deliverance from the circumstance that he finds himself in. And when we see his reference to persecution and the arrogant who are digging pits for him, you could say he's already or currently in a situation where he is waiting for God's promise. He's waiting for God to help him, to bring him out of this circumstance. And so in the midst of this trial, as he's weak and waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise, you still see faith. What is faith? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, it's his seeing the unseen. What is not seen is how God is going to deliver him. But what he does know is that God has promised something to him. And so he's looking to that promise with hope in that promise, confident 
because he knows God and believes his word to be true. And God's word is true. But he's weak, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And we could just certainly ask the question, does God fulfill his promises? And you can point all over the scriptures to see where he has fulfilled promise after promise after promise, and especially in Christ. You want to see whether God fulfills his promises. Christ is the yes. He's the amen. Of course God does. Christ came in keeping with all those hundreds of years and many, many promises. God keeps his word. But his soul is languishing. There's faith there, but he's languishing. And verse 82, his eyes are failing. The words with longing are added in. The idea is he has his gaze upon this promise. He's hoping that it will be fulfilled. He's confident that it will be. But as he waits, the strength that he has is failing. Even his eyes, which are fixed on that promise, are weakening. He could be crying. He doesn't say tears here, but there are places where this phrase, my eyes fail, is connected with crying. Psalm 69, verse 3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Waiting for deliverance, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled and tears. Multiple tears, many tears in terms of Psalm 69. Lamentations 2, Jeremiah said, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. And again, I'm not saying there are tears in this verse. Could be just his fixed concentration waiting for God to help him. And he's looking for God to fulfill his word and bring deliverance and the resulting comfort to his life. Which tells you what? Right now he's uncomfortable. Right now, there are difficulties. There are circumstances beyond his control which are causing him this discomfort, and he knows that God can bring that comfort. It's just not there yet. And I know when we go through trials, we do feel this way, don't we? So painful, so hard. Even if it's not physical pain, sometimes it's emotional, and we struggle, and we're looking for God to help And certainly he's there with us through the trial, but we're looking for that final deliverance, which will bring full relief. And that is what he's longing for here. Notice what else he says, verse 83, though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. I used the words earlier, useless or worthless. Why? Because a wineskin would be a leather bottle, literally made from the skin of an animal, prepared in such a way, perhaps sewn up, so that it could hold liquid. And when it was fresh, flexible, it could expand. If wine was put in it and that expanded over time, it could handle that expansion because of the flexibility of the skin. But if it was put into the fire or it was placed near the fire and that moisture was drained out of it, or or if over time the moisture was drained out of it, 
then it would become brittle and dry. And sort of like those Gibeonites who took old wineskins and they brought them to the Israelites and they told the Israelites that their wineskins were broken because of the distance they came, they probably just put them in the smoke or they just had some old wineskins around that had lost their moisture. But he's comparing this to himself. He says, though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. And some suggest it has to do with his outward condition. Because he does say I, but I think this refers to his inward soul as well as perhaps, as obviously trials do have an effect on our body as well. Now, what do you use a dry wineskin for? Nothing. You just cast it aside. It's not really good for anything. And that's how he's feeling. You ever feel like you're really not good for anything? Now, we're made in God's image, and for that reason, we have worth because we reflect who he is. So our lives, apart from anything that we might do, have value because of that. God places a value upon the creatures that he's made, but he is feeling now like he just is useless. And when you feel useless or you feel worthless, you ever feel like just giving up? I just, what's the use? Forget it. But that's not what's going on in his heart. He says, though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, he says, I do not forget your statutes. There's something lodged in his memory because it has come into his memory because he's meditated on it. In fact, if you just looked through this psalm, and I'm not going to ask us to go to every verse, but if you look at just that that idea of the statutes of God and what he has expressed regarding the statutes of God, you can see he has given considerable time and investment in thinking about and praying about and desiring the statutes of God. He longs to keep them, verse 5. He's determined to keep them, verse 8. He resolves to keep them, verse 16. He meditates on them, verse 23. He has asked God repeatedly to teach him his statutes. That's one of the repeated prayers of this psalm. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. And now he's saying, I don't forget your statutes. Because God has taught him his statutes. He has even made... God's statutes, his songs in the house of his pilgrimage. So he's singing about the statutes of God. He's thinking about the statutes of God. And what is, what is coming to his mind in the midst of this trial that is giving him, giving him some measure of strength? It's God's statutes. So I appreciate the encouragement about Bible memory, because when we get God's word into our hearts. We don't know what we're preparing for, but this life has enough trials and difficulty that we really need God's word to inform our thinking so that we really don't give up and we hold fast to the Lord as he 
holds fast to us. Notice, well, let me just add one more. In verse 80, prior the verse prior to this stanza, he says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. He has prayed, teach me. He is praying that he would be blameless in God's statutes, and here he says, I do not forget them. So he hasn't stopped obeying the Lord. And that's God's grace to him to sustain his faith and strengthening him through this time. I like what Spurgeon said. Here is the patience of the saints and the victory of faith. Singing. No, not singing. He can give you a song in the dark but at least meditating and not forgetting in the dark. You're still holding fast to God's word. But he continues. His soul is languishing. His eyes are failing. He's become like a wineskin, useless, worthless. At least that's the way he feels, but he's not stopped obeying God. But then he asks the question, how many are the days of your servant? You might think you could paraphrase this with, how long do I have to live? How long is this going to be that I'm going to live? I think we have to be careful to notice that his posture, even in this question, is a humble one because he says, how many are the days of your servant? And it appears that he's making an argument because this trial that is upon him is extended And certainly through his life, he is hoping that God will fulfill his word and the trial that he's facing will not extend to the length of his life so that every day of his life will be this affliction. Now, we know man is born for trouble. The sparks fly upward. We know that this world will be filled with trials, but it's also filled with the consolation of God. And God does give respite at times, relief, even if it is just his infusion of grace into our circumstance that helps us make it through a time. But he's wondering how long, how many days he has. And this is David asking this question. You can imagine Paul asking such a question in jail, John in exile, Joseph in the prison. We want to know how long. How many days do I have to endure this? And when, in light of my circumstance and in light of the sin of my enemy, when are you going to act? You know, it's okay to ask the question that he asks in verse 84. When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? It's okay to ask that question. When, God, are you going to judge? Now, God, sometimes, instead of executing judgment immediately, shows patience and grace. And sometimes, remember, in those imprecatory psalms, there are times where the psalmist prays 
for judgment and is speaking to the Lord about his enemy, but God doesn't always bring judgment. Sometimes he brings mercy. Praise the Lord. He did that with the Apostle Paul. And of course, if we think about it, he does that with all of us as he shows mercy to his enemies. But have you ever asked that sort of question? How long is this trial going to be? How many days are the days of your servant? How long am I going to have to live in this circumstance? And I like what Charles Bridges said in his commentary. Your trial has done its appointed work when it has brought you to him. Your trial has done its appointed work when it has brought you to him. So is your trial bringing you to the Lord? He goes on to say, and inclined you after your master's Example, instead of taking vengeance into your own hands to commit yourself and cause and your cause to him who judges righteously, that was Christ. Who, as he was reviled, he didn't revile again. He didn't insult when he was insulted. Instead, what did he do while he was suffering there on the cross? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And by the way, when the psalmist here is offering this petition to God, he's doing the same thing. He's entrusting judgment to God. He's not retaliating. And that's what this kind of prayer does. That's what an imprecatory prayer does. When you call down judgment on your enemies or ask for God to judge righteously your enemies, you're not taking matters into your own hands. You're entrusting that to God. And God can choose to show mercy or he may in keeping with his justice, bring down punishment upon the enemies of his people. So you can see how dark this time is, and yet even in the dark, he is clinging to God's word, holding fast to God's word. He's tested, but still trusting in God, and in his word. And let's look at the latter half of this stanza. Look at verse 85. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. So he's just spoken in verse 84 of their persecution of him, but now he says something about their character, that they're proud, that they're literally hunting him, setting traps for him, a pit. In the Old Testament, that word is used in, in different ways. But you know, Joseph was thrown in a, in a pit. Uh, the purpose of a pit could be to capture someone or something, capture an animal that once it's in the pit, it's easier to fire arrows at because it can't get out and it's kind of just a, a sitting target there. But in terms of what the psalmist here is experiencing, he knows that there are pits that are dug for him, and he doesn't know where they are. You can't see because they're covered over with something. One writer was talking about how next to the Nile or other rivers that have uh, crocodiles or perhaps alligators, the way to capture them is to dig a pit and cover it over with a kind of straw that they'll fall into. 
I don't know if the crocodile hunter uses that tactic and I'm not going to try it myself. But the idea is to get that, get that animal into a helpless condition and to cover over that pit so that there won't be any warning that you're about to fall down in. It's like walking through a minefield. You don't know when you're going to trip the mine. And these men, as it says there, the arrogant have dug pits for me. Men, that's a supplied word, but it's those who are doing this, he says, are not in accord with your law. I phrased it this way. They're out of sync with God's word. They're not obeying God's word. They don't love God's word. They are hunting God's people and trying to destroy them. So no, that of course is a disregard of God's word. It's actually antagonism to God as it shows antagonism to his people. So what's the argument here? Well, have you ever told the Lord about what you're experiencing? With someone who is sinfully acting against you? You just told the Lord, this is what's going on. You're not asking him to do anything, but you're just stating the facts of their disobedience to God and their pride. And in David's case here, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that his concerns are right and good. What does God do with the arrogant? He opposes them. What does God do with those who disregard his word? They're arrogant. They're insubordinate. They disregard God's law. Does God care? Yes, he cares. Does he hear such a prayer? Yes. The very mention of the issue before God is a righteous issue. He's concerned, but he knows that God will be concerned. What does God say about those who break his law? He says in Jeremiah 9, the Lord said, because they've forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after their the Baals or their gods as their fathers taught them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them after I've, until I've annihilated them. You think God isn't serious about his law and his word? He is. Every sin in this universe will be punished. Every sin. Now you might say, that's kind of a strong statement. Well, if you're a believer, we know that our sin is punished. How? In Christ, who absorbed the wrath of God. But when it comes to those who don't find refuge in Christ, they will for all of eternity be suffering for their sins. I'm saying God will punish for every sin. And so the very mention, verse 85, of the sins would be a righteous issue with God. And that's where you don't even have to make the plea with God to say, here's what's going on. This is what they're doing. And God will handle that. He does handle that. 
Look at verse 86. So he's hunted. But verse 86, he's persecuted by lies and praying for help. You'll see that at the end of the verse. But before he makes that statement about his enemies, he delights in and finds some solace in the truth about God that all of his commandments, his words, are faithful. They're all true. There's not a one of God's words that's false, that's empty, that won't have the weight of truth. No, all of God's commands are faithful. They are true. They will prove to be true. But in contrast with that, the ones who are acting as his enemy have persecuted him, pursued him with a lie or with falsehood. Whereas God's words are dependable, these words are despicable because they are not true at all and they're forged in order to harm him, to bring him down. What do you do in that kind of a circumstance? Somebody's lying about you. They're hunting you. You're feeling all the emotional effects of that. What do you do? Well, you don't retaliate. You do pray. What do you pray? It's a beautiful prayer at the end of verse 86. You can memorize this today, right? Help me. Help me. Help me, Lord. You can pray that prayer. And what an effective prayer. Spurgeon said that's a golden prayer. Matthew Henry said this is an excellent, comprehensive prayer. Think about how many circumstances you might find yourself in where if you just prayed help, God knows what you need. You need provision? Help me. You need help in temptation? Help me. Are you in a trial? Help me. Cast into alliance then? Help me. Accused wrongfully, help me. Having trouble with a relationship in your life, help me. Have you sinned against the Lord and don't know what to do? Help me. The Lord is our helper. Do you ever ask for help? Do you turn to the Lord? Because there's sometimes, right, we get in circumstances, they may not be exactly like this, but they are difficult and pressing us down, and our soul is languishing, and our eyes are failing, and we feel like someone is doing something against us, and we don't pray that. And we think we can get through the circumstance without God's help. Can I say this to every single one of this, including myself? You need God's help. I need God's help. And there's the prayer. And you can memorize it, but Beyond that, use it. Your daily life, you need help every day. Help when you struggle in your soul. Help when you're going through a trial. Help when you're dealing with sin. Help when the enemy is attacking you. I think the longer I go in my Christian life, I do believe that there are times of more intense attack by the devil 
There's also times where because sin has been stirred up, I may my own heart may be more prone to temptation or weakened. But at any time, you can pray, help me. And he hears that prayer. He hears the cry that we make to him for help. Notice in verse 87, he says, they almost destroyed me on earth. They're persecuting him. Verse 84, they've dug pits for him. They're hunting him. They're persecuting him with a lie, verse 86, and he's almost spent. The word was used earlier in verse 81 that's translated there, languishes. The idea is he's almost used up. They almost brought me to the end of myself in the earth. All of his strength, all of his resources are gone. And yet, this is encouraging. He says, as for me, I didn't forsake your precepts. I I didn't turn away. I didn't abandon what God said to do. And that's something we need to be reminded of, that even in the midst of our difficulty, we need to hold fast to God's word And I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself doing that, that is God's grace in you. He is helping you. And if you've asked him for help and you're doing that, that's a demonstration of his help, his grace, his strength, his power. When you continue in obedience, even when you're tested in that kind of extremity. 2 Chronicles 16.9 Charles Bridges shared a number of verses in this section of his commentary that were helpful and reminders of God's strength and power to those who are looking to him. You heard this one, 2 Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Why did Peter not give up? He, he sinned against the Lord. He went out and wept bitterly, but why didn't he give up after that? Remember what Jesus said to him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus had prayed for him, not only for him, but for those who he could then help after he was helped. Can I say this? It was not Peter. It was God in Peter. What we saw this morning was not Peter. It was God in Peter. It was Peter, but it was God in Peter. It was the Spirit who was helping him. Praise the Lord that he does give us help. He helps us to hold fast to his precepts. Let's look at this last verse together, verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness. Why? You see, there's kind of been this. He's not looking for mere comfort. He's not looking for mere relief from the pain. He is looking for that, but he's looking for help so that in the midst of this, he can continue to obey God. Notice what he says revive me according to your loving kindness. So that's the idea of steadfast love your loving loyalty. It's different than 
praying on the basis of his goodness or somehow his something about his life. He's this is nothing about him. He's asking God to do something because of who God is. Revive me, give me strength according to your loving kindness, which we know is everlasting. How long is it? It's everlasting. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. Read Psalm 136. It's everlasting so many times to drive home the point that it's always there. It's always there. What's his desire as he prays for strength, for renewed energy? His desire is to obey God to keep and to guard, notice how he puts it, the testimony of your mouth. He wants strength, but he wants strength to keep the way of the Lord. He has said earlier on in the psalm, how blessed is the one who keeps the way of the Lord, who walks in the way of the Lord. And now he's tested severely, and he just needs the strength to keep on persevering because he knows there will be joy and benefit if he just keeps on walking in that way? Can I ask you a question? What is it that you want in your life? Even in your Christian life. Do you want to obey the Lord? Do you want to bring honor and glory to God? Or do you just want relief from your troubles? Jesus, when he called disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is that a call to? That is not a call to ease. That is not a call to comfort. This is not, someone said, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is the adversity gospel, right? The difficulty will be there, but God will be with you through it, and he will be changing you to make you more like Jesus. I love the song. I was listening to this song. I found a a good baritone singing this. Master, thou callest, I gladly obey. Only direct me, and I'll find thy way. Teach me the mission appointed for me. What is my labor and where it shall be? Master, thou callest, and this I reply, ready and willing, Lord, here am I. Willing my Savior to take up the cross, willing to suffer reproaches and loss, willing to follow, if thou wilt but lead, only support me with grace in my need. Living or dying, I still would be thine. Yet I am mortal while thou art divine. Pardon whenever I turn from the right. Pity and bring me again to the light. Master, thou callest, and this I reply. Ready and willing, Lord, here am I. There's an unnamed man who was a servant of Jonathan, who when the Philistines were present in Israel at a place called Michmash. Jonathan recognized that there needed to be an attack upon the enemy, and he trusted that the Lord would give him strength and help. And the scripture records a conversation between him and his 
armor bearer, this young man who was carrying his armor. And he said this to this young man who's with him, and it's just the two of them. Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Now, what would you do if it's just you and, I mean, he's a strong guy. He's a big guy. He's a powerful guy. He's a prince. But it's just, it's just him and you. And there's about 50 big Philistines over there. What are you going to do? I love his answer. Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself. And here I am with you according to your desire. Whatever you want. Now that's a man talking to another man who's trusting in the Lord, but we need to say that to the Lord. Whatever you want, Lord. Whatever. If you're taking me through a trial to show the sufficiency of your grace and the depth of your love, the greatness of your power, so that others around can see that God is at work in me, so that they will be drawn to him. If that's your purpose, God, I'm right here, and I want that. Just help me. Help me, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the word of God and for the help that it is. We ask, Lord, that you'd minister your truth to us tonight. And even as we think about our lives and whatever we're going through, Lord, help us as we pray tonight. Close to thee, you're our everlasting portion. Keep us close to you. We're not doing this, living this life for ourselves or for any fame. You have called us to it. We know that there is adversity, there are trials. Those trials are meant to shape us, to help us to trust in you. Help us, Lord. Help us all to stay faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you will be faithful according to your loving kindness to hold us fast. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.